Hello and welcome to part two of the Late Bronze Age with me, Foz and Ross. Say hello, Ross. Hello, everybody, and thank you so much for everyone who listened to our first episode. It's amazing how many of you tuned in. Uh, so we're really grateful for that. Anyway, Foz, how are you doing? I'm alright, bruv. I'm not too bad. I've had a good after at work because it's Florida. <laughs> so I finish at one o'clock and I'm sat in my pants doing this recording. My ear, so it's great. I've got a beer. I'm so proud of you. I've got, actually got two different beers today. I've gone no, for... I, I don't know, I didn't want to give the wrong impression because I was on the Carlin. And if anybody knows what Carlin is from the first episode, they're probably going to make a lot of misconceptions about the sort of person <laughs> I am. So I've come off the Carlin. Like, mm. I'm off it now. So I've got a nice Guinness. I've got a nice can of Guinness, which is pretty nice. And I've also got my backup beer, which I've actually got both open at the same time at the moment. That's basically uh, a cocktail. Yeah, yeah, so I've got a cocktail of Guinness and Gold Rush West Coast Session IPA, which does have wheat in it, and because I'm not supposed to eat wheat, it means it's going to give me an upset stomach, but I don't care, because it's nice. That's excellent decision making. Yeah, what about you, mate? I have got a premature wheat beer, and I unfortunately have loads of that, because, like, my wife was trying to be nice, and she went to the shop to get me beer, and she knows I like premature, and they have, like, a yellow bottle, which is the 11 degrees four and a half percent and they have a slightly different yellow bottle that is wheat beer so i have a shit ton of wheat beer to get through tonight yeah but that's nice i like wheat beer even if you can eat wheat wheat beer really messes your stomach yeah. up, doesn't it? it doesn't matter who you are if you drink a lot of wheat beer it's gonna mess you up it's like one of them on a summer is nice but drinking it all night no it's not a good idea yeah they have it at the christmas market for some reason don't they always christmas markets all have wheat beer i'm not really sure why but they're in the uk anyway just german yeah, German Christmas in us. Right, so where did we leave it off then, bruv? Alright, so last time then, so we talked about the what the Late Bronze Age is, we talked about kind of an overview of which area we're talking about, so we're talking about um, from Eastern Iraq up into Greece, and the last thing we talked about was the way that you had these kind of these great powers, these great kings. These brothers. Did you say the big brothers? No, no, the brothers. They're all brothers. Oh, they? yeah, well, they all called each other brother, and some of them may may not have been brothers. Yeah, I exactly. was thinking about that quite a lot, you know. And I th- mm. the, the more you think about it, the more weirder it sort of is that they have this, like, <laughs> you know, ceremonial title of brother. Like, I call people brother, but, that, yeah. but I'm not a king. I'm not the king of hell. I'm not, like, you know, sitting in Cairo with loads of slaves around me. But, you know, it's also kind of similar, though, because, you know, if you, you just imagine you're on the bus and there's some random smackhead on there and you know you call him brother he's gonna be like i'm not your brother fuck off and that's exactly the same like you know if you're the wrong level of king and you're calling someone brother yeah. you're not supposed to that's a good point mate yeah yeah this is why we do the history you know because this quality <laughs> take um so yeah so yeah exactly uh so we talked about like you know the, these the great kings and then like the vassals so the father and son and brothers and this sort of relationship um so I think that's where we want to pick up, is we'll talk about these great kings, the most powerful ones. So we're talking about the Egyptians, the Hittites, the Babylonians, the Assyrians, and another group called Mitanni, which we will talk about a bit more later on. We have covered them briefly as well, haven't we? We have covered them briefly, but I think they're kind of less familiar to people. Like, until I was really doing the research, I didn't really get what they were about. Um, so I think we wanted to explain Well, I think more. it's going to be quite interesting as well, because I don't think most people, like... If you've got a general knowledge of history, you, you'll know you'll know about the Egyptians. You probably won't know about the different ages. You'll probably have heard of the Babylonians, you know, because of the song. 
But a lot of these nations, like Mitanni, like who's heard of them? Who's heard of the Mitanni yeah. people? I think. Yeah, I think they're you know less well known, less familiar from just school history and stuff. So I think it's worth that we have a look through them in detail, what they're all about later. Anyway, so as we said, then these kings were very concerned about their status, about who was equal to who, who was below who, and they carried out diplomacy all the time. There's envoys, messages always going backwards and forwards, like we said. Um, they made treaties, which they wrote down, and they shared copies of the treaties, so both sides had something to reference. Normally these treaties, as we said, were written in um, Akkadian, which is the language of Babylon, even if it's not involving the Babylonians. So there's an example, uh, probably the most famous one, is that the pharaoh Ramesses the Great, uh, from Egypt and the Hittite king Hattusili the uh, Third, they signed the treaty in 1259. We have copies from both sides, so we see that they're almost identical. And in the in these treaties, there's stuff like promises not to fight each other, that they would defend each other if one of them was attacked. Um, and one thing they specify, which is important, we're going to come back to later on today, is they talk about extra extraditing people who have fled from one country to the other. And that's going to be important later, so we'll come back to that. How would they prove that, though? Because it's not like these dudes are rocking passports. No, that's true. But, I mean, I think it's like they arrive, they speak a language. You know, you think you move out into a small village, everyone knows that guy wasn't here yesterday. Yeah. And he's got a suspicious, you know, Egyptian accent. He's walking sideways looking at you. <laughs> not <laughs> those suspicious Egyptians. Oh, no. <laughs> um... So yeah, one of the things they did when they had these formal treaties is they would mark the occasion with marriages. So this is again where we get into like being brother, father, so on. It's like symbolic, but it also is literal. They all married each other's sisters and daughters and so on. Uh, so they cemented the alliances with marriages. Um, one of the kind of unique things about Egypt is Egypt would not allow Egyptian princesses to marry outside of Egypt. And all the other great powers found this very frustrating. Because um, they all sent their sons and daughters to marry. So they only sent their sons? Yeah, or more likely people had to send their daughters to Egypt to marry ah, their yeah. son. So right, you, there's, you can feel how that's slightly different. Is there any reason given for that? It's about status and prestige, but the reason everyone kind of accepts it, even though they all find it frustrating, is Egypt was the only place that had gold. So the kind of the trade-off for this was if they send you a daughter, they're going to give you gold in return Greedy for the daughters. Daughter. And there's an interesting one. There's a Babylonian king, a guy with the fantastic name of Kadashman Enlil. Oh yeah, old Kadash. Yeah, good old Kadash. And he wrote a letter to the Egyptian pharaoh uh, to Amon Hotep the Third, and he specifically said, "If you give me gold, I will give you my daughter as a bride." And Amenhotep wrote back, literally like, oh, what a good dad you are, thanks for that. <laughs> Blazed. Yeah, although it can't have been that much, because the marriage did happen in the end. Oh, okay. <laughs> and actually, this one's interesting, because we know that Amenhotep, he married two daughters of Babylonian kings, he married two daughters of Mitannian kings, and a daughter of the king of Azawa. Yeah, that's right, so my daughters, then. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like, they're, like, multiple wives, the harems, and stuff like Ah, okay. But, um... It's also interesting because you think like Babylon being in like uh, modern Iraq, Mitanni was across northern Syria, and Arza was like the western edge of Anatolia facing Greece and modern okay. Turkey. And you think that's kind of surrounding the centre of Anatolia, which is the Hittites. So it's like a policy of containment. 
alliances surrounding the Hittites. So, you know, it's exactly the sort of thing like the, the United States was doing in the Cold War with the Soviet Union, like making a ring of alliances. Okay, smart thinking to be fair, but it makes sense, doesn't it? You don't have need advanced yeah. technology to figure that one out, I suppose. Yeah, but there's definitely this sort of strategic thinking going on. Um, so yeah, everyone, we talked already about the gifts, and we talked about how like you know people, uh, you know, sent lists of gifts, and they're always exchanging gifts backwards and forwards. Um, and the other kings in the in their letters are always referring to gold in Egypt, and they specifically always talk about it being like dirt. Like, oh, there's gold everywhere in your country. And they complain to the Egyptian king, like, oh, you sent us this much gold, but you it's like dirt in your country. You could have sent us so much more. So there's loads of begging and complaining like this. What is the value of gold, though, apart from for decoration? Because, obviously, back then, I suppose that's the mm. only use. I know it's a hard, precious metal, and it looks nice, but it's not like they're making gold connectors and cables, is it? It's yeah, literally just so for decoration. It is literally for decoration. It's a status thing, and it's about, like, you know, the, the social elites can mark out that they're social elites. They also use it for... Um, religious purposes which we're going to talk about a bit later but they use it for decorating religious statues as well so it has a um a spiritual significance as well as the physical beauty of gold Mm -hmm. um but they also write back to the egyptians complaining like remember we said about like that the kings were sending lists of the gift that they've sent yeah so they'd receive a list from the egyptian king say how much gold is there and then they melt the gold down and they weigh it and it's not the same amount of gold and then they're complaining about it. They're complaining about it. Well, they always were, they were kind of made this diplomatic nicety of saying, oh, Pharaoh, your servants must have stolen some of the gold. <laughs> rather than accusing them of shortchanging them. Or they were just lying about it. Yeah. I think it's almost <laughs> certainly like the Pharaohs are probably shortchanging them and they're like, yeah, you're shortchanging us. But no one's going to call it out explicitly. Yeah. They're, they're trying to play noisy-noisy still about it. Yeah. So, I mean, there's a lot of kind of you have to sort of not take things at face value with these diplomatic letters. Um, and we said before, like, there's kind of this ritualistic element. So not just pretending that we're brothers, but pretending literally like that we are all neighbours and we live in a village. Um, so, for example, the Babylonian king was opening a new palace and he sent an invitation to the pharaoh of Egypt to come and visit the new palace. There's no way he's going to do this. Obviously, it's not practical. But imagine if you're in a, house, in a village and you've built a new house, of course, you invite the neighbours round. So they do it, even though there's no possibility of like fulfilling it, just because it's part of that group pretense we're in the village. Yeah, this village that spans how many miles is it from? Yeah, Egypt thousands. To of miles. <laughs> thousands. Of, you know, I, I, it'd be interesting to see how long it would take that journey. Like, say, from Egypt yeah. to Babylonia. Obviously, you, I don't know whether there's a direct route that's not just through the desert. Yeah, I mean, you would have. To, you wouldn't be able to go straight through the desert because this is before the domestication of the camel. Oh, so, so they didn't even have camels knocking about? Not until the end of the period. Ah, so what were they riding? Um, across the desert, would it be? It would be like carts and chariots, because the horses so horse, then were horse drawn smaller. Okay. Yeah. I, I'm not going to say that like, it's impossible people were riding horses, because I didn't look into it in detail, but I mean, definitely for like military purposes, people were riding chariots, not on the back of horses. But the chariot was pulled by the horse, though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not a cat. See, I always had in my head that these people were on camelback for everything. Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting thing. It's a little bit apotropic, but you know, uh, in the late in the in the Hebrew Bible, when it's written down later on, and they're talking back to this time, there's camels all over the stories, 
Because by that time they were writing it down, camels were everywhere. They couldn't imagine a world where the camel wasn't there. Okay. But it's only domesticated at the very end of the period. Oh, it's okay. Um, so, yeah, so... And kind of going back to this idea of, like, the ritual and the pretense. Also, we keep talking about gifts, but, I mean, it's like they're not really gifts as such. And it's important why they're doing it. So, first of all, I mean, it's like they're not just giving it because they're being nice. They're doing it for a purpose, right? Um, I think that's clear to anybody. <laughs> yeah. It's not yeah. being nice it's, to each other. It's to keep the peace, isn't it? It's keeping the peace, and it's trade. It's trade under a different name. So there's kind of this unwritten rule that the gifts should be equal in value. You give someone this, then they give you something else back. Um, I mean, there's like a lot of effort going into this, a lot of, you know, organisation, a lot of infrastructure going into this. But the reason for it is, first of all, it brings you resources that you wouldn't otherwise have. So nobody else had gold, you know, uh, copper comes from Cyprus. If you don't have this elaborate gift exchange, you wouldn't bring these things to your country. Second, it's about, you know, showing off your status and prestige like you know saying you you as one king are saying to your own people and to your neighbors look how powerful i am the pharaoh of egypt sends me gifts that's how important i am and it's also um you know for any any society you've got like the elite at the top and this part of how you keep them on side i'm a good king because i bring the good gifts from egypt and i share it with you my nobles you you get the idea Mm. Um, I mean there's certain situations where it is more like a gift so for example when there was a new king it was expected the others would send him gifts and uh, we mentioned before uh, Hattasili the third of uh, the Hittites he wrote a letter to the Assyrian king complaining that he didn't receive a coronation gift okay so know, it's like rectified or is there is that as far as the trace goes that you know to that's as far as I know I don't know if there was a rectification of it but it's clear like the again these like unwritten rules and everyone's following the same um the way we played the game um but yeah this is what this is it's it's trade by another name um one of the ideas that eric klein in his book draws on is um he compared it in the south pacific now where you still have tribal groups that like the canoe will arrive and the chiefs are giving each other gifts but while they're doing that, the crew of the canoe are trading like more generally. So he suggests maybe this is happening as well. Like you send the train of gifts, but also the merchants go with it, and you know they have the protection and the security. Yeah, then it so a trade it's, mission. Yeah, so up front it's this gift giving, this ceremonial thing that you're talking about. But in reality, there could be this massive entourage. The traders all come out. Exactly. And then yeah. The deals exactly. get done. And, okay. So I think, like, one of the things we mentioned before, like, one of the features of this era is the um, the trade network that's going on. The huge trade network. It's huge trade massive, network. massive, isn't it? This vast distance that's been traded mm-hmm. over. It's... Yeah. So, I mean, if we think of kind of what the core of the trade system... I think the best way of thinking of it is a bit like a, a hurricane, where you have, like, a kind of a central vortex, then other stuff branching off. So our central vortex, it's um, a sea trade in the eastern Mediterranean. And it goes in a counterclockwise direction. So we sort of go round from Cyprus into the Aegean, into Greece, down past Crete, into Egypt, then up the coast of modern uh, Israel and Lebanon. 
So the boat, the ships always went this direction because that's the way the wind blows. Oh, okay. I was, I was about to say, does that imply that there wasn't trade the other ways? But if that's where the wind blows, and that's where the boats go, isn't it? Yeah. So they were they were sailing rather than rowing, and that that's there was this kind of uh, consistent route. Um, the focus kind of shifts over time. More places become more integrated. So as we get later into the period, like uh, Greece and Cyprus become more important rather than being an occasional stop. Um, and another important thing to understand with this is the ships do what in modern shipping is called tramping. So they go from port to port and they take, you know, they drop off some of the items and they pick up some new items and they sell little bit piece by piece. So it's not like they pick up a whole cargo, sail to one place, empty the ship. So you see, you know, they pick up, let's say, copper in Cyprus, then they sell a little bit in Greece, sell a little bit in Egypt, sell a little bit in. Uh, and then they're picking up things the entire exactly, way. Yes. So you basically got this constant voyage of trade that's going on, rather than like pick up A, drop up B. It's very much like a constant yes. motion of trade, things coming on and off the ships, which makes perfect sense. It's logical, yeah. isn't it? So exactly this. Um, we know some of the things that they carry, and we know it. We have merchants' letters, and also I think the really interesting thing we have shipwrecks, which have survived. Yeah, I've I've read a bit, a little bit, but that's why we know so much. I think because mm-hmm. of these shipwrecks, isn't it? Like a lot of this information, I don't know whether it is all written down, but I know a lot of it comes up because they find the shipwrecks. Exactly, and we find the mix of goods, and the only way that's happening is it's doing this sort of trade. Yeah, that's the like uh, the one of the first things I found for my little bit of research was these massive vessels carrying 10 ton of material to make mm-hmm. in the perfect quantities to make bronze. So you're yeah. nine parts. Uh, is it nine, nine or parts ten parts and, and then one part tin, yeah? Like they're yeah. found in these exact quantities, so there's no disputing what the, what's going on. And if it's all on a boat in the middle of the ocean, then it's clear that the only reason is they haven't sailed it out to sink it. Yeah. It's obviously been for trade, hasn't it? Yeah, and we find... You know, like, So we have this idea of the, the ships going into the circle, and then there's other trade branching into it. So you have other regional trades which bring stuff into the kind of the key ports... And then it, the stuff that's come in joins this vortex. So we see things like, for example, we have tropical ebony wood. So it's from down in the tropics of Africa, which has come up to Egypt and then been sold into this vortex. And we find the logs preserved. We have like regional specialization as well. So we have like cedar wood from Lebanon. We have um, ivory from hippopotamus and elephants in Egypt. Copper from Cyprus. Uh, other stuff we see selling... Uh, Precious metals in the form of like jeweler's scrap. Okay. So you find like broken pieces which are going to be sold and melted down. We find raw glass out of Babylon. Uh, we find the remains of fruit, and we can tell also they were carrying some stuff which wouldn't have survived. Um, so this we find you know bottles for perfume, containers for olive oil and wine. And one that I found kind of intriguing because it's mentioned in both of the books I've relied on for this, is that they're carrying containers to transport drugs. And I couldn't really find any details about what this would be. So, I mean, as our resident herbal enthusiast... I actually go by herbologist. Herbologist, uh, I'm yeah, sorry. Yeah, like yes. on uh, Harry Potter. Um, <laughs> I actually go by herbologist. So I know a little bit about this. Obviously, I've done my own research. And the Assyrians factually used hemp and cannabis that's a certain but it's not certain whether it was used as a drug 
the the earliest I could find. Can, obviously, everyone knows cannabis has used, been used as a drug for a long time. In China, like the first, this was fairly recent. I think it was a 2001 study, um, and they found cannabis acnes, which acnes is a term for. I think it's an imprint of the seed, or it's an imprint of the flower. I'm not sure okay. which one of those it is, but that was happening at 800 BC, 8,000 BC in China. Okay, well, okay, so like. So that, but it, that doesn't necessarily mean it's happening here in the <laughs> in the Middle East where we're talking about. The you're gonna to have to help me on the pronunciation. The Scythians, Scythians, which is a little bit later than what we're talking about. So that's like 480 BC, I want okay. to say, because that's the source I've got. They were very well known for the use of cannabis. Um, Herodotus, 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 the Greek historian, he reported that the inhabitants of Scythia. How do you say that again? Scythia. Scythia uh, would often inhale the vapors of hemp seed smoke in ritual use and for pleasurable recreation. So basically, from now on, I'm just referring to them as the tribe of stoners. Like, <laughs> sort of in my head, you've just got all these dudes with long hair just smoking the shisha. Um, but it was known to the Assyrians, but it's not necessarily was used as a drug. It's it's one of those. It's definitely known to them, but I don't think there's enough evidence there to say, yeah, they 100% were smoking the reefer. I think mm. it, it, they definitely used it as an aromatic that's from the little bits that I find. It's definitely used an aromatic. Whether it's used as a recreational drug or not, that's different. Um, but there's there's plenty of use there for there's the use of hemp's definitely there. But the actual fact that these drugs were being used for recreational use, I don't think is clear. But the fact that they were definitely used for some sort of ceremonial uses amongst this time period, I think that's sort of obvious. There's that so much stuff out there, mm. so easy to find. And the, the Egyptians were well known for the cultivation of the poppy seed for a very, very long time. Okay. Um, as a drug as well as uh, for, like, you know, for the, for the actual plant itself. Mm. Poppies were, were that uh, commonplace. They used to grow wild in Egypt. Mm. So there is a, there's a lot out there, to be honest, aren't it? And, yeah, the, these, these people were definitely using some sort of illicit substances it's 100% I don't think there's any question on the matter I think it's just like an inherent thing that humans do if something can get us fucked up we will yeah, use yeah. it to get fucked up yeah definitely like the <clears throat> there's something called ergot I don't know if you've ever heard of ergot which is a it's psychedelic yeah. yeah psychedelic mould that they was used um, they literally used the mould as an ingredient in this time period for many different things mm. and traces have been found of it like uh i don't know if it's fast i'm not really sure how they find this out but they like swabbing like little ceremonial jars and they find traces of ergot which is super psychedelic mm. uh so it's definitely been used it's it's one of those because in your back of your head you know i like to have the idea that there's these pharaohs all sat around taking drugs all day like, i love the idea of that so it it naturally is gonna tarnish but when i read something I'm like well that's yeah. gotta be true then because i want it to be true like it's really it's to fall into that trap isn't it with this kind of yeah. stuff so i'm trying to be as level-headed about it as i can but it was definitely used but it's whether it was used for recreation i think that's the big one maybe mm-hmm. it was used for recreational i don't believe it was 
But a lot of these people were using it for ceremonial purposes, 100%. Like, there's right. so much evidence out there to show that. So it has to have been traded because it doesn't grow everywhere. Yeah. Like, yeah. the actual... Um, there's there's a really interesting map that you can find out there that's really easy to Google. You can pick it up on the internet very easily of the, um, the different ages of what time in history these different, whether the rope, hemp rope, because obviously cannabis is directly from hemp rope, isn't it? Like there's, there's a clear line of domestication of hemp for rope and hemp for aromatics slash psychedelic uses. And this, yeah, this was there's a clear branch out you see, and that's in when I'm talking about when it was first found in China in 800 uh, BC, 8000 BC. Sorry, that's the first finding of it, a separate strain that was used for aromatic purposes. Because that's what I wanted to ask, like, what's the difference between hemp and cannabis? Because I know there's a connection, and I know that hemp, as you say, is used for rope making. So was it the case like? Maybe they were making something for rope, then realised, hey, you can get high off of this, and then start... Well, I'd, I would imagine the original... Like, you, there was a separate breed that was made for rope that didn't produce the flour for smoking. So oh, it was okay. a purposeful divergence of the... Of huh, the of, okay. So it's, it's been done by us. We bred a type for rope, and we bred a type for aromatic, and the, the type that has the THC in the flour, basically, which is the psychedelic part of cannabis that gets you high gets you stoned makes you be able to contact the gods as these people would have believed which i'm how i'm fine with that like if we're going to contact some gods i'm all up for it but that's the that's that's the, the opinion it, it's it, very well well used well known to these people but whether it was done as a recreational drug i highly doubt it to be honest yeah in the it same was way, purely man. kept for these ceremonial religious aspects mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess it's harder to imagine, like, Egyptian stoner culture. <laughs> yeah, or listening to Nirvana. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wait, run, yeah. <laughs> but that's interesting, like, the, the idea maybe, like, you know, some rope makers are, oh, my people, my employees just keep getting high off my <laughs> raw materials, I need to grow and do one that doesn't do that. But, yeah, okay, so thank you for that. Um... So yeah, like like you're alluding to there as well, like you know, you have these things that move around to other places and get moved on, um, and like we said earlier in earlier episode, these like kind of these uh, feeder trades coming into this main vortex go serious distances, um, easily for as far as Spain, for uh, silver, uh, easily as far as Afghanistan for tin, um, so we. we you know, tin for it isn't found in the Middle East. It had to come from Afghanistan to get there. So just that trade route on its own is a huge distance to maintain. I'm sure I read somewhere it was also coming from Cornwall. I in the UK. I I know that Cornish is a thing, and I know there's shipwrecks from later periods. None of my sources mentioned Cornwall, but that's ah, not okay. to say not to say it didn't happen, man. Cornwall is the bottom left leg of the UK. That whole geographic area is uh, Cornwall for the listeners that don't know. Yeah, I know there's like Byzantine era shipwrecks in Cornwall, but that's obviously significantly later. Hmm. Um, the thing that you kind of notice with the, what they are trading, we're talking raw materials and we're talking luxuries. There's also quite a lot of craft items, so like uh, cities in what is now Palestine, Israel, Lebanon. These were famous for things like textile manufacture. 
we have this sort of stuff quality craft what we don't have is like um a continued trade in bulk material so for example in the roman period like big grain ships going across mediterranean is a thing this doesn't look like that was how it was here this is more you, sorry mate were you saying then to that's more of like an a to b trade isn't it like this trade yeah, is exactly. set up for the movement of this week to this place yeah. So what you're saying is that didn't necessarily happen, so there wasn't the organisation there for these massive, sustainable... Uh, yeah, I don't think they had the frequency that, of this. I mean, certainly cities depended on trade to bring enough grain in to feed them, but I think this is more local rather than huge mm-hmm. cross-Mediterranean shipping. That said, we know for a fact that grain relief shipments were sent in times of famine, because we have letters between kings begging for help uh, we have, at the end of the period, we have the Hittite king begging his neighbours for grain because there isn't any in his country. Um, and we know that, for example, Egypt was sending grain shipments in response to famine to help out uh, other kingdoms. But I think that's a slightly different thing to a continued trade. Yeah. Um, as we mentioned, the copper everywhere. We mentioned this, the shipwreck is the famous one at uh, Uluburan which is exactly as you say, 10 tonnes of copper found with one tonne of um, tin. These copper ingots, they kind of they were made into ingots which don't look like the ingot that you're picturing in your head right now. They weren't these kind of rectangles. What they look like is, you know in a cartoon when there's an axe and it's always like a double-headed axe, really big at the ends, really skinny in the middle. That's what these ingots look like. Okay. Each of which weighed about 60 pounds. Uh, the Uluburan shipwreck is really interesting because there's like items from seven different regions on the ship. Um, speculated that the ship started off in the kind of Palestine, Lebanon area. But from the artifacts, the personal items recovered, at least two of the sailors are believed to have been Mycenaean Greeks mm. from the weapons they were carrying that have survived on the seabed. So you see this really kind of international trade and like picking up not just items but crew and. Uh, sailors as they travel around and I think also one of the things that happens with this is because these sailors going port to port to port they're not just taking goods, they're taking ideas, they're taking stories they're taking religious beliefs and I think it's one of the things that you see is similar concepts and stories popping up in different places there's lots of parallels to stories in the Hebrew Bible with the Epic of Gilgamesh from Babylon and ideas from Babylon pop up in Greek stories. That would make perfect Bible. sense, so wouldn't it? If, if trade was so common, which we well we know it was, mm-hmm. that's that's how things move, isn't it? That's how stories get moved. It makes perfect sense that these things were happening because mm-hmm. how is a story from Babylon reaching Greece? Like, I ain't being funny. That's a long way. It's a lot of desert as well between those two people. So it, it's sort of a no-brainer, isn't it, that these things were happening, I think. Yeah. But you don't think about it because it was so long ago. You... Exactly. But people are people and, like, you know, sailors are going to tell stories in taverns. You can also imagine a lot of exotic STDs being passed around the Mediterranean. Yeah, areas. I can imagine there was a quite a few <laughs> uh, things knocking about on those same <laughs> uh, loins. But the flip side of trade, of course, is also we know that trade embargoes happened. We know that great kings tell their vassals not to trade with people that they're not friendly with. And we see between the Hittites and the Mycenaeans, 
there are almost no artifacts of one culture in the other one's country. Where, because of poor relations, they don't trade. Ah, okay, yeah, that's interesting. And we know from the Hittite contracts with the vassals, they tell them you may not trade with what they called Ahiawa, which is Macedonian Greece. Okay. I wonder why the relationship was so bad. Did these these two states border each other then? Um, they didn't border each other, but they did have a kind of a competing zone of influence in the middle. There's a place called Azawa, which they were competing over control of to an extent. Okay. Um, when we, t- I want to talk about Mycenae and Greece in an episode focusing that, because I also want to talk about the Trojan War, which is in this period. But on topic of war, so the truth of the Trojan War, because I think there's yes. a lot of misconception over the Trojan War, isn't there? Yes, I think there's a lot to discuss in terms of how much of it is true, how much of it is legend, where does it fall? Well, I know Brad Pitt fought in the Trojan War. Exactly. Because I saw a documentary that that told me that. Yeah, he killed Eric Banner. <laughs> Um, so yes, yeah, so all of these great kings were constantly in a state of rival with each other. They kind of they understood more or less that they were equal with each other, but they also like you know they're struggling and pushing each other around for status. So there's a lot of rivalry going on. Also, during over the time period, we get a kind of a military ideology develops. So the Hittite and the Egyptian kings, especially, start defining themselves as warrior kings. Their imagery. Like they present themselves in armor, wearing weapons. Their uh, the inscriptions they make in public start being about their battles and their campaigns. Um, so the Hittites and Egyptians do this from early in the period, and the Assyrians also start doing this. The odd one out is Babylon, where they always cared more about this older idea, where the important thing is the king is a builder, and the Babylonians list the buildings the king built rather than the battles the king fought. But they're the clear outlier here. Is that like a cultural thing then? Do you think yes. we put that down to the yes, fact that they're definitely. culturally a bit more interested in the building and the grandeur side? And... Yeah, like the Babylonians kept this like conception of their kings going back way into the deep past. Um, they're drawing on very, very ancient legacy, so it's kind of continuing that and it gave this pressure to stay in that way of conceiving themselves. So the wars that the kings were fighting... They were both direct and indirect, so between the great powers smashing into each other directly, but also through proxies. Uh, we see sort of different things in different situations. So in the area of like Syria and Palestine, Israel, as we said, no great state emerged there. No one unified, but no one was ever, ever able to conquer the whole thing either during the period. What you had were lots of vassal kings who kind of traded off loyalties to one or of the great powers. And the great powers also used their vassals to fight each other. They might get a group of their vassals to target one of the other side's vassals and pick them off. So if you're just kind of looking at it at service level, you just see city-states fighting each other. But with the context, you're like, okay, this is the Hittites coordinating an attack on the Egyptians. Surely the Egyptians would know, in that exact situation, surely the Egyptians would know that and then not why would they not go to all the Hittites? Why would it just be left between the vassals? Well, that's the thing. Over the period, it kind of started off in this way and it starts escalating more into direct confrontation uh, as the time goes on. It's um, funny because as time goes on, it comes all comes to an end eventually, so that's a little coincidence we found And honestly, there. I think there's a connection there. Yeah. But we'll talk about it a lot when we get to the end of this. Mm-hmm. Um, other, one of the things that made the confrontation between the Hittites and the Egyptians and Mitanni and the Egyptians 
like this is because you had all these mini states. Elsewhere, for example, Babylonia and Assyria directly bordered one another, so their fights were always head to head. But until the very end of the period, neither of them seriously tried to destroy each other. Um, and the Hittites and the Egyptians never really like went for a death blow. I think the logistics of travelling to the Hittite capital in the centre of Anatolia, I think it's beyond what armies were capable of, really. I think the, um, the geography goes against them as well quite a mm. lot here. Like, If you think about, uh, say, like Renaissance period Europe, Obviously, they're prime fighting conditions. You can go over there, you can fight. There's water, there's everything you need. Mm -hmm. But when you're fighting across deserts, I think there's a whole extra level of complexity that goes along with that. Like, if you've got a bunch of dudes that you've got to get across the desert, like, that's a lot harder than getting ex-French guys across the border through a forest to Germany. It's just, it's a completely different yeah. game, isn't it? And these, these distances are also much Fast. bigger. Like, you think how far Egypt is from Turkey... Compare that to getting blokes to go 20 miles across the channel from England to France. It's, it's a different ballgame. Yeah. Um, and I think also it comes into the ideology of everyone understanding they're part of the same system. No one wants to kick the system over. Yeah, I suppose if, if like you say, if uh, Mitanni and Egypt fighting, as an example, if if you completely destabilised Egypt so it became nothing, like surely you'd be aware like that's gonna have massive ramifications for this mm -hmm. this sweet honey pot of trade that we got going on like, that's gonna upset the balance a bit but it's incredible that you actually did that by pure coincidence because the one country that was destroyed during the period was mitanni okay <laughs> <laughs> um <laughs> they at some point in the 14th century bc so like 1300s they basically get broken in half um in the east eastern part of their country was Assyria which it's a little bit unclear but it looks like Assyria was a vassal of Mitanni okay. and basically you had a combination of Assyria rising up and at the same time the Hittites smashing into Mitanni's vassals in like northwestern modern Syria so the Hittites kind of swallow up the western half of Mitanni and Assyria swallows up everything else and it re-emerges as the new great power in that region um we know a fair amount about the fight that happened so i want to go on a little kind of side journey about after mitanni had been destroyed and the hittites replaced egypt uh, replaced mitanni as the uh competitors to egypt in syria and palestine so they're kind of struggling over some the hittites are coming down from anatolia from what's now turkey into northern syria and lebanon the Egyptians going up the coast. And they're butting heads with one another, and eventually it comes into open war. And one of the first battles in human history which is well documented is the Battle of Kadesh in 1274 BC. And the Egyptian army is going up to kind of push back on the Hittites. And what we have in this is, first of all, the first ever use of misinformation. So, the Egyptian armies march in north, and the Hittites send out two spies. The Egyptians capture the spies and begin torturing them for information. And the spies report the Hittite army is far away. The Hittites' spies had been given fake information. The Hittite king knew that these spies were going to be captured by the Egyptians and tortured. The Hittite army was already at the city of Kadesh. So, That's Ramses... some next level play there, that is, isn't it? Yeah. I like that. That's quite smart. 
So the Hittites have deliberately misinformed the Egyptians. The Egyptian pharaoh, Ramesses the Great, he believes the city of Kadesh is wide open. So he rushes ahead, army, you know, marching formation to get up there and capture the city. The Hittite army, led by, uh, you have to excuse me for this pronunciation of a name, is led by King Supiluliuma. I'm not going to say that again for the rest of the episode. I'm going to say that's 100% accurate. <laughs> I'm just going to go for that. His army are hiding in the shadow of the walls. And then the Egyptians come marching out into the plain and they rush out into battle formation. The Egyptians kind of realise it at the last minute and Ramses is able to get a rough battle formation going on. But he's you know, caught un- unprepared. We have Ramses' own dictated account of the fighting. Uh, so one of the Egyptian army is divided into three divisions. One of them is crushed instantly by the Hittite chariots. Then they all kind of coming into the centre, closing in on Ramses, and he describes, you know, fighting hand to hand, driving the Hittite chariots off, um, making kind of a final stand around the pharaoh who survives. As all of the accounts emphasise the role of chariots in the fighting. And afterwards, Ramses the Great, after this battle, all over Egypt, he builds these monuments declaring about his great victory at Kadesh. Bullshit. (laughs) The battle either ended as a stalemate or a defeat. And the reason we can tell this is because we, when we look at the military outposts, we see Egyptian artefacts moving further south, Hittite artefacts coming further south as well. The balance of power changes, the Hittites expand. So Kadesh is, at best, a draw for the Egyptians. Van der Meyrup sees it as a crushing, decisive victory for the Hittites. But in what terms do the of Hittites like, say about this, then? Less well-documented, but oh, they... I remember from last episode we were saying there's not a lot of documentation, is there, about the Hittites from their own sources, is that correct? Uh, there's more, like, less than there is from Egypt. Yeah. Um, but I mean, like initially, like in the 19th century, everyone had this view of oh, the great Egyptian victory because they only had access to the Egyptian sources. Once Hittite sources start becoming available and the archaeology becomes available, we say actually no, Ramses is just bullshitting and this is literally fake news and propaganda for his people <laughs> fake at home. News, <laughs> literally. But it's like you know, you go back home and tell yeah, 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 of course we won a victory, of course we did. We didn't get our teeth kicked in. <laughs> and I can't think of any other absolute ruler at the moment who might be having a conversation like that. <laughs> um, so what we can say then, there's war is going on a lot between the great powers, but it's relatively low level. We're not seeing like Alexander the Great or Romans conquering everything, crushing everything before them. Um, I think that leads to a healthier balance, to be fair. That might be a reason why this time period did lasted a long time to be fair when you don't have like you said with the romans like they just literally it was like it was almost like oh rome's a thing let's conquer everything and then just periodically started conquering everything i think the fact that this was how many years ago before rome thousand years one and a half thousand years mm. well, thousand years before rome yeah. a thousand years before rome but obviously there's this balance there because everyone's getting on and trading Yeah, so I mean, the wars kind of go on, but yeah, everyone's working in this system. The smaller powers trying to keep their freedom, the bigger ones trying to keep them down. Just to kind of wrap this up, just sort of mention a little bit about what these armies would have looked like. So I mentioned before, there's a lot of emphasis on chariots, and the chariot riders had a special status in all of the societies. 
they all in all of them the charioteers are the social elite in terms of how you actually fight from a chariot the depictions kind of vary but it see and kind of varies by culture but it looks like you had two or three men in the chariot one of them would be the fighter so he would either have a spear or a bow you'd have another man was the driver and then you might have a third man who's like carrying a shield to protect the warrior uh, we know that they had armour. The amount of armour obviously would vary for the person, probably the poorest people being massed as infantry, like a leather shield and a spear and not much else. But for the elites, we know that they had, like, plate bronze armour. There's a set that we found called the Dendra Panoply, which I, we should try and get this as the uh, episode art because it looks like a bin with armholes in it oh nice <laughs> gosh um, but it's made out of bronze yes okay. it's like full bronze segments covering the most oh like, lam- like lamella like segment plated but like really big lamella strips okay nice so it looks it's a really very strange. large sort of plate strips large bands together. Okay. yeah so like there was on the one end this sort of full body bronze armour we know that they had uh, bronze helmets, but also they had helmets made out of boar tusks. I, thought, I saw a little bit on the boar tusk helmet as well. If you give that a quick Google, listeners, that's definitely worth checking out. It sounds crazy, but when you see it, you're like, oh, actually, that's probably going to work. So yeah. Like a, hat, like a hat, a cloth, like a, a hat made out of boar teeth, isn't it? And boar tusks, yeah, it's basically. like loads of boar tusks just in strips, like, sewn onto a hat. Yeah. Um... These were professional soldiers that I'd, I'd like to add as well, um, because there was an excavation at Mersin. I'm not entirely sure where Mersin is, but I know it's in the the Middle East region. And that uh, they found fortifications for soldiers' quarters from as early as two, uh, 4,300 BC. Okay, so that's well before. So we that's talking. well before this time. <clears throat> so if they found barracked areas for professional soldiers, then. By this time, they've got they do, these. Have to be some sort of professional. Obviously, they'd have a professional military backed up by levies of men with pitchforks. But they're definitely yeah. going to have something, some sort of organised army here. The fact that it's going back so long, and also chariots first appeared in the 20th century BC. So this is a this is a lot a lot sooner mm. than that. So that that technology has probably been. Like when when you say a chariot from this time period, like your your brain automatically thinks, oh, it's this shit box that's barely put together. But they can't be. They've been making them for like what, five hundred years already, four hundred yeah. years already. So obviously there's going to be a certain amount of craftsmanship in that. So it'd be quite interesting to see what these chariots look like. It'd be, it'd be lovely to see if there is photographic evidence of these preserved because I bet they're really well made. Yeah, I mean, what we have, I think, I'm not sure if any. Physical chariots have survived. Maybe they have in Egyptian tombs. I need to look that one up. But there's definitely picture evidence of it, and some of the, like really detailed carvings of like you know the pharaohs riding in their chariot and going into battle. Um, I haven't looked before next time to see if any actual chariots have survived in an Egyptian tomb because they might have. Yeah. Um, and so yeah, just kind of like you're saying, like with professional soldiers, like really you had this whole social element that were just a social elite who existed and they were maintained. Food handouts, like we said, from like you know, the palace economy, just to be a military elite. This isn't the same as the European warrior culture, though, is it? This is quite a different thing, I think, isn't it? This is probably the closest thing. You think of like medieval times, okay. knights, as like just a distinct fighting class, probably something like that. Okay. Um, 
And yeah, so next time I think we'll talk about like the society that maintained these sort of military elites. Uh, I just wanted to finish up with one last thing because last time we mentioned about um, naval battles around Cyprus. Yeah. And I had a bit more of a look at that. Oh, okay. Indeed, you tell me about this. Indeed, this is like the first recorded naval battle between oh, the Hittites shit. and Cyprus. No. Nice. And there were some Egyptian uh, wall carvings from the end of the period showing sea battles. And what we see is like, we don't see like ramming or spikes on this, but what we do see is archers on the ships firing into each other and boarding action. We see men with swords and shields climbing between boats. And they've got pirate hooks and stuff as well. No, but the depiction <laughs> does have loads of dead bodies floating in the water, so it's quite grim. <laughs> nice. Um, so, yeah, so it's, it, there's what we can say. Like, it's a period where there's a lot of military activity, but we shouldn't necessarily think in terms of big wars of conquest, because I don't think that's what we're looking at here. It's more exciting if there is. <laughs> so I'm sure we can find something to back up some sort of massive conquest. But it's just a shame. It's one of those, isn't it? Like I said before, you, you, you sort of reaffirm your own bias sometimes. It's, it's quite mm. difficult when you're trying to look up things like this because you won. You know what you want to be true already. So you yeah. look for that stuff and then you're like, oh, is it factual enough? Like there is a lot of. I think because it's so, obviously the time period we're talking about is so long ago. It's very difficult to say, yeah, 100%. Obviously, there's certain things you can say 100%, mm-hmm. but I think there's a lot that you sort of have to take with a pinch of salt. Like, there's a lot of information out there that will cl- clearly say, like, yes, this happened and this happened. But when you actually look into it, there's not enough evidence to support that. I'm not saying does certain things have and haven't happened. I'm just saying, like, it's, you have to go with an open mind sometimes, don't you? Yeah, I mean, to be honest, like, on this topic like researching this series has been a seriously difficult at times because <laughs> i mean i'm relying on two you know academic writers and both of them have radically different viewpoints on people on things sometimes uh, to the nature of things like the whole nature of a kingdom they disagree um okay. processes they have massively different interpretations and then you also because of the timing it's like you have um the same person appearing in two different narratives doing two different things at different times uh, just because the the sources are kind of so fragmented and how do you interpret who this person is Um, that's history that's a history for you yeah it it is but yeah for this like really ancient history this is there's a lot of kind of filtering you need to do and double checking between the sources before you can be have any confidence in literally anything (laughs) Okay, so I think we'll wrap up there for this time. I think next time what we want to do is start looking at what life was like in these in this era and start looking at some of these countries in more detail. Fantastic, okay. Well, yeah, that's wrapped it up very nicely, I think, Ross. Thank you very all much. Right, Let's perfect. drink some more beers and talk about stuff. Do that. All right, thank you all so much for listening, um, and we look forward to seeing you all again in part three of the Late Bronze Age. Thank you very much, everyone. See you next time. Bye-bye.